Aren't you thankful that the scripture writers have a sense of humor? Of course, I'm not going to mention this. I'm so glad you're all here with me today. We get to look into the scriptures. We get to worship together. We get to enjoy each other's company in the presence of the Lord. There's really nothing greater to do on a Sunday morning than to gather together and look at scripture. Well, as as we turn to Luke chapter 14, we're going to start with verse 25. I just wanted to remind you of the context of what Jesus has just finished doing. Jesus has just finished gathering around the table with the religious and rich elite. And he stands up and gives this parable and says, don't take the seats of honor. Give those seats to the lowly in, in the culture, in society. Where's the lame? Where's the blind? Where are the beggars? Where are the poor? Why aren't they invited to this feast? So Jesus is leaving that, talking about radical compassion and, and including the least and the lowly in all that we do together as the people of God. So Jesus has just said that parable, and we, we see a few verses later that a large crowd is following Jesus. Now, I want you to picture yourself in the crowd, okay? You're following someone who may have just healed your friend, given sight back to their eyes. You may, have, you may be in the crowd as a, as a cripple now being able to, to walk upright. You, you may just be so full of happiness and joy, right? Following a miracle worker, a, an incredible teacher, and, and somebody who you know loves people well. And then Jesus turns to the crowd and says these words. Okay, so you're in the crowd with me, all right? And also, remember, I have to preach from this after I read it. Okay, just remember that. Verse 25, chapter 14 in Luke. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Turning to them, he said, whoever comes to me and doesn't hate father and mother, hate spouse and child, and hate brothers and sisters, yes, even hate one's own life, cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't carry their own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. If one of you wanted to build a tower, wouldn't you first sit down and calculate the cost to determine whether you have enough money to complete it? Otherwise, when you have laid the foundation but couldn't finish the tower, all who see it will begin to belittle you. They will say, here's the person who began a construction and couldn't finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down to consider whether his 10,000 soldiers could go up against the 20,000 coming against him? And if he didn't think he could win, he would send a representative to discuss the terms of peace while his enemy was still a long way off. In the same way, none of you who are unwilling to give up all of your possessions can be my disciple. The written word of the Lord. All right, let's go have lunch. Can you, what is Jesus trying to get at here? Did that come off as harsh to anyone else? Unless you hate your father and mother. And the Ten Commandments are ringing in my ear. Honor your father and mother. And then the Son of God is saying, Unless you hate father and mother, right? Spouse, children, even your own life. So what is Jesus saying here? Didn't, didn't we read in scriptures that love is a fruit of the spirit, right? Not hate. God is a God of love. John, first John says God is love, right? So what is Jesus trying to get at here? 
in regards to unless you hate your father and mother, unless you hate your brother or sister and children, spouse, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. You know what's really ironic to me is that for centuries, many traditions get caught up on one or two verses that say, well, women can't be leadership leaders in the church. They take one or two verses and read the whole rest of the Bible through those two verses, rather than, after they get hit with a bad theology ruler, rather than reading those two, two verses through the rest of the Bible, right? That changes your whole perspective, because you see Deborah as a judge, you see Miriam as a prophetess, you see all of these bold, incredible women leading the charge in Scripture alongside their male counterparts as well men and women leading in equity. That's the first five centuries of the early church. If anyone tells you different, tell them to come talk to me, okay? First five centuries, men and women served in the church equally alongside of each other. They'll take those two verses, and then they make a whole tradition on it. Then we can get caught up on the one or two verses on homosexuality. That just becomes our whipping post. And we don't read the thing about gluttony, how the Bible talks about lying all the time, and gossip on Facebook talks about that all the time. Like so much. But we'll get, hot, hot, we'll get hung up on a couple of verses and make it everything, right? How come we never did that with this one? I mean, Jesus, this is like him saying, unless you do this, you can't be my disciple. And then he's like, unless I hate my family, we're just going to stay away from that one. Not going to touch that one in Luke. We're just going to let it be. We're going to get hung up on some other verses that kind of confirm what I already like, what I already believe. I don't want Jesus to make me uncomfortable. And you know what? As a pastor, having to preach this on Sunday, it made me uncomfortable. Right? So it really gets into the point of like, one, why isn't this such an important passage to us? And, and, and two, what is Jesus really getting at here? It talks about two things. Unless you hate these components of your life, you can't be my disciple. And have you calculated the cost? Those two things Jesus is really trying to get us to focus on here. And he pairs that with taking up their cross to follow Jesus as disciples. Well, before we get into what Jesus is really talking about hate here, I, I, I want to talk about a dynamic that's happening in the crowd. Jesus has just left the religious elite, has just left the rich and the powerful, who, and the poor and the powerless were not invited at that, at that feast, that banquet. So Jesus is leaving, and now a large crowd is following him, and it's, it's, it's a mixed crowd. It's rich, it's poor, it's male, female, it's Greek, it's Jew. It's, it's all mixed in this large crowd that is following Jesus. And then he turns and he, and he says that, and he ends by saying, unless you give up your possessions, you can't be my disciple. So what the question is, what's happening with wealth in that culture? Let me, let me tell you what's happening to wealth in that culture. One, if you're poor, it's because you or someone in your family sinned, right? It's kind of like a karma. So if you're in poverty, you are distrusted, you are uh, disowned, you are looked down upon by the rest of the culture because you're poor. 
And you're literally reliant on other people, and it's seen as a weakness. So the poor are, are looked down upon and, and, and really despised by the rest of the culture. And in first century Palestine, you have the greatest wage gap in history greater than any wage gap that we've seen since. The, the gap between the super wealthy and the poor was huge. Jesus had a lot of poor people following him for a reason <laughs> because there's a, such a big gap. On the other side, wealth. If you're a wealthy person, guess who despised you? The poor. Why? Because you profited off of high taxation. You had the right to go in and seize land whenever you, whenever you felt like it. You could enslave entire groups of families to your work and your well-being. It was the pursuit of your personal wealth that was the center of all of who you were. And so the wealthy was despised as well. Now, did Jesus just talk to the poor? No. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, wee little man was he, right? Super, super rich guy, super short guy too, but gave half of his wealth after meeting Jesus, right? So what Jesus is doing is coming into this culture and he's saying, your society is built on leveling people's value on the presence or absence of wealth. That's how you value people. If people don't have enough wealth that meet your standards, you're going to despise them. If people have too much wealth, you're going to despise them because of how much you lack, right? It's based on this measurement of starting with lack rather than abundance. Haves and have-nots, right? When Jesus came in and said, you are not to have your value contingent on the presence or absence of wealth. Your value is intact because of the presence of God. You are a valued child of God because God loves you and made you. So it's not contingent on the presence or absence of wealth that measures your status. We are all loved by God. That's a radically different starting point, isn't it? So when you're looking at life through the presence of absence or presence of wealth, it changes the way that you have relationships. It changes your decisions. It changes the way that you see others in the world. But when you start with the premise that God is love, God values you, and we are called to value each other, the presence or absence of wealth doesn't mean a thing. It's all to be used to the glory of God and the glory of humanity to make them alive, <laughs> come alive to God. Jesus has come to set them free to their value because when you are defined by the presence or absence of wealth, you, will, you never have enough, right? Amen? Is that different from today? Do we still measure people based on the presence or absence of wealth? Sometimes I feel like we go crazy looking at the people we make into celebrities because people don't just become celebrities. We make them celebrities, right? People don't just become leaders. We make them leaders, right? So when we're looking at a celebrity or a leader or whoever and we're like, how is this person the way that they are? We don't have to look any further than the mirror. Because society produces those kinds of people, right? So when we look at celebrities, sometimes we just make them famous because of how much dough they have, right? 
They get rich off of making duck whistles, and we just make them all sorts of celebrities, right? Or, or, or athletes, however rich they are, we just kind of put them on this pedestal because we have this belief that wealth is somehow moral, that there's, there's somehow super right to have a lot of money. And you are more moral, you are more trustworthy because you're wealthy. That's a, that's a foundation in our culture. And in the culture I grew up in Nampa, Idaho, if anyone walked into Walmart or Winco with a food stamp, my culture would say, oh, they're lazy. They're somehow dependent on the government and they, they can't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They obviously need to get a job and get their life together based on the absence of wealth. We look at dependence as a weakness, right? We still value people based on the presence or absence of wealth. And it plays itself out in very different ways. And so Jesus is saying, unless you give up that paradigm, unless you let that perspective of possessions go, you're not going to understand the value system of the kingdom. You're going to continue calling things of God that are not really of God. (laughs) And you need to let that go so that you can see the kingdom clearly. So what is Jesus saying about hate here? I want to propose to you that that hate, the, the Greek word that Jesus used here, and English translators, sometimes I'm like, man, those who translate languages are not always pastors. Because <laughs> if you have to get up and speak this to a group of people that you deeply care about, you want it to be understood. Amen? You want the scriptures to hit you right in the heart. And sometimes those who are translating the, the, the they're just translating the letters of the Greek words, and then they get to go home, right? <laughs> I get to go home after my sermon and then answer emails all week and phone calls and all that stuff. And maybe I should forward it to them. That's a really good idea. But the Greek word that Jesus uses here that we translate as hate is not the absence of love. That's how we define it in English, right? When you hate something, you are as far away from loving that thing as possible, right? When you hate someone or something, not that anyone has ever done that in this room, ever. When you hate something or someone, you are literally repulsed by that thing or that person, right? So you're going to be as far away, you're going to put as much distance there. And so that's the absence of love towards that thing or person. That's not the word that Jesus is using here. So it's not the, 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 the absence of love, but really where your allegiance lies. The Greek word medio here that Jesus uses is where is your primary allegiance? And that means a lot when you look at your primary allegiance as wealth. When your greatest commitment is wealth, How can that not shape your decisions, your perspectives, your relationships? It creates a very narrow definition of who can be your friend, who can be in your family, and who can't be. And then Jesus starts to turn from preaching to meddling here and says, unless you medio your father and mother, unless your allegiance is greater to the kingdom of God than it is to your father and mother, you can't be my disciple. Unless your allegiance 
is greater to the kingdom of God than it is even to your spouse? That's a, that's a tough one right there, right? Then you can't be my disciple. Then he goes further. Unless the allegiance to the kingdom of God is greater than your allegiance to your children. Okay. He's prob- people are probably turning around at this point in the crowd and like, okay, he has lost his rocker. I'm heading back to Jerusalem, right? But he, he is saying unless your allegiance to the kingdom of God is greater than these commitments, you can't be my disciple unless your allegiance to the kingdom of God is greater than to your allegiance to your own life. You can't be my disciple. And what Jesus is trying to say here is that we won't have an appropriate perspective of love. We won't have a holy love for God and for for neighbor if our greatest allegiance is our parents. Right? Our our decisions, the way that we live is going to be shaped by whatever our greatest allegiance is. So when you think of the word allegiance, think of whatever you give the greatest authority to is what you give the permission to say what you live for and what you die for. So when you're pledging your allegiance to something, you are saying you have the permission to say what I live for and what I die for. Can I ask you something this morning, church? Who deserves that allegiance? Who deserves to tell you what to live for and die for? God. Your creator. (laughs) only your creator, the one who loves you deeply, has the permission to tell you what to live for and what to die for. And that's why Jesus is saying, pick up your cross and carry me. Because that's a pretty big allegiance. If you're picking up a cross and saying, all right, Jesus, I'm going to follow you to the end, to the hill of Golgotha, and, and share in your crucifixion because resurrection is on its way. What other allegiance in this world can offer you eternal life? What other allegiance in this world can offer the the elimination of poverty? What other allegiance in this world can offer you resurrection from the dead? There is no other allegiance. They go through this list of really close relationships. How are you supposed to have a good relationship with your parents? Have your greatest allegiance be with Jesus. And your relationship with your parents is going to be fundamentally different and full of purpose. How do you have a good relationship with your spouse? Have your greatest allegiance to Jesus shape that relationship? How do you be a good parent? Have your greatest relationship be with Jesus and let that allegiance shape your relationship with them. What about to your own life? Have the greatest relationship, the allegiance be with Jesus and let that shape your relationship with yourself (laughs) so that God can endue the purposes of all of creation into who we are and then we will be living fully free and fully alive and these relationships can be all they were created to be, right? Something that happens in our culture, just like with with first century Palestine, they tried to fuse wealth and God, right? We call it the prosperity gospel today. Have you heard of that one before, right? So if you serve God, you get rich right away, right? Look under your seats. There's a key to a brand new Corvette. 
They're not really. I really wish I could do that. How much fun would that be? Attendance would skyrocket. But in first century Palestine, they fused their relationship with God with the, the accumulation of wealth. And we have that in our culture as well. But something that we kind of forget in discipleship in the church in America often is that we, we don't really understand surrender in regards to the Christian life. Mostly because, and I want to use this as a point of repentance, mostly because the Christian church in America has so misused its power and authority that it has abused people so much that thinking of surrender, especially for the marginalized and the oppressed and and women, (laughs) it, it can look like you're submitting yourself to more abuse and more surrender, right? To, to that corrupt, broken system. And so that, that needs to be repented of. And the church has a long way to repent from those injustices that it has done in our own country alone. Can I get an amen on that? And we work towards that. We have a responsibility to work towards that as Euclid Community Church, right? So that being said, when you surrender your life to Jesus willfully, you have free will, right? When you willfully give your life to Jesus, your life is then no longer your own. It's no longer mine, but yours, God, right? So when you're baptized into the church, your life is God, neighbor, and you. The greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? So that that triad is working together now in a surrendered life. Before a surrendered life, we don't really we think in very narrow categories. Like, who's my friends? Who are my family? Who are the people that I count close? And I don't know about you, but even as a Christian, I struggle with those narrow categories. If they're related to me biologically, I naturally care more about them. If I'm interested romantically in someone named Rebecca, then I I naturally want to spend more time with them. I naturally want to, (laughs) I kind of lost all of you at that point. (laughs) You naturally want to give more of your time and resources to that person that you care about, right? Your spouse, your significant other, especially with children. There's a love that parents and children have that cannot be duplicated in this world. You want that little one to live a life of happiness and joy and being taken care of. Every single day I saw that love in my parents' eyes, wanting the best life for me, right? But sometimes we can get, because of these good things, and these aren't bad things, these are really, really good gifts from God, but because of those those relationships, we can get a narrow category on what is family and what is friends. And Jesus, just last chapter, said, where is the poor and the powerless? Where is the blind and the cripple and the lame and, and, and those who you really don't like? Because they're children of God, too. And so, yes, we need to care for our family, but we're, as the church, are also called to care for the family of God, which is all of humanity. And the goal of the church is established to eliminate poverty, because God hates it. We're here to feed the hungry, clothe clothe the naked, and and be with the poor, visit those in prison, because God hates people. God doesn't hate people. God hates when people suffer. 
God hates it when economic divisions are there and the rich just keep getting richer and the poor stay poor, keeping them rich. And we build societies that, that honor greed more than sharing. We honor societies that build on the backs of those who can't even sustain their own lives. And then we ridicule them for being government dependent. We as the church start with a different paradigm because our lives are no longer our own. We share what we have so that we can eliminate what destroys humanity in this world because Jesus destroyed sin and death on the cross for us. And so we're a people of the resurrection. (laughs) So our lives are no longer our own. So every single relationship, every single choice, every single thought, we then commit to Jesus Christ and say, how would you have me go about this faithfully? Even when it's hard. I'm sure people got splinters picking up crosses. It's the faithful life costs a lot. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died in a concentration camp, pastoring his church, said that grace of God is free. Amen? But it isn't cheap. Taking up your cross to follow Jesus costs us everything. But Jesus gives us all in return in the way that gives us the greatest purpose and the greatest meaning in life. I'm going to turn from, because Jesus can do it, I'm going to do it too. Jesus turned from preaching to meddling. I'm going to meddle here just for a little bit. And you can always count on me to meddle in this way. I'm going to add some more things to the list, right? Unless your greatest allegiance is to the kingdom of God, unless you hate your political party, you can't be Jesus' disciple. Unless you hate your nation, you can't be Jesus' disciple. Unless you hate the government, that's an easy one for you, right? Unless you hate the government, you can't be Christ's disciple. This has real-life consequences where your allegiance lies. You know how you're the best citizen? When your primary allegiance is to Jesus Christ. Amen? You know how that you can get along with people who are on the, on the other sides of the aisle who you just vehemently disagree with? Have your primary allegiance be with Jesus Christ. Because he tells you to love your enemy, and nations don't do that. Nations don't tell you to love your enemy. Nations say that they're first and the most important allegiance in your life. They claim to tell you what to live for and what to die for. And who is the only person that has permission to do that? Jesus Christ. That needed an amen. I, I don't. The only person that has the permission to do that is Jesus Christ. Jesus established the church in the world, and there is no plan B. There is no plan B. This, the, the church that Jesus planted is God's mission in the world. And so when you see leaders in the church like some bozo with a white shirt holding a microphone. They were called to submit themselves to the authority of God, that their lives are no longer their own, and in baptism, their lives are no longer their own, and they give themselves over to the church over and over and over again, and surrendering that pride and that ego over and over and over again, right? And for what? What is my job? Sometimes to come alongside you and encourage you, 
Sometimes to come alongside you and build you up. Sometimes to come alongside you and tell you really terrible puns. Like, that's part of my job. But sometimes, sometimes my job is to come alongside you and say, hey, hey, are you giving all of yourself to Jesus Christ? Is your greatest allegiance to the kingdom of God? Because all these other areas in your life are going to suffer if your greatest priority isn't to the kingdom of God. And that's sometimes the hardest part of my job is to challenge you to grow in Christ-likeness, to take up your cross. But it's not because I'm trying to be legalistic and thrust the kingdom of God over you. It's because I have submitted my life over and over and over again. My life is no longer my own, but it is Christ's. And I want you to do that as well because I have found beyond what I could ever ask for, pray for, or imagine, I have found the deepest connection with God and with people in my life because of Jesus Christ. And so if I ever come alongside you and challenge you, even if you're my mom and dad sitting in the back, if I ever come alongside and challenge you, it's not because I'm trying to thrust an arbitrary law on top of you. It's because God knows what's best for you, and he's called me to be a shepherd and to walk alongside you and guide you. I want us to pray in this moment for anything in our heart and lives that maybe the greatest competition for our allegiance to Jesus Christ. And I want you to pray that the Holy Spirit would do a work in your heart and life to give yourself fully to Jesus. And I want you to ask God, God, if you ask me for this one thing, I would lose it. I would, I would just, I would be broken and devastated. And ask God to let your allegiance to Jesus redefine that relationship so that you see it in the weight that it needs to have in your life. Let's pray together. Lord God, as my brothers and sisters pray over this, would you fill them with the presence of your Holy Spirit? Would you continue to intercede on their behalf? And as they're doing this hard work of finding where their primary allegiance lies, I ask, Lord God, that you would give them the freedom to let these things go. Give them the freedom to let their hearts be fully dedicated to you so that when we leave this place, the world sees a people shaped by radical compassion, set free to not define relationships by such narrow categories, but that all of humanity is, is God's children and that we are called to give all of compassion to them. I pray, Lord God, that our hearts are put in the right place with you so that we can do what is right in this world. Listen to these prayers, O oh God as they bring this to you.